Father, would you speak to us this morning by the power of your spirit, the power of your word, in the context of your community and the church, would you speak to our hearts and minds about who we are in you? Would you give us the assurance we need to fight uh, against our sin, this battle that rages within us? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be soft and transformed into the likeness of your son, Jesus? God, we want to know you more. We want to experience you at a deeper level. Would you engage our hearts and our minds this morning? We ask that you would do it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've only been close really once to like a real fight, okay? Um, This was the end of seventh grade, the summer before eighth grade, and my buddy Casey Vetter was having a party, end of the year party, seventh grade celebration. There's like 25 of us in his house. Um, We're all in the living room. His parents are there. It's pretty innocent. The living room's dark, and we're all dancing, right? Like, we're, we're like partying as, as, as a seventh, going into eighth grade. It's a big deal. And all of a sudden, in the midst of the dancing, David Teal knocks one of the pictures off by accident off the wall. Goes down to the ground, and he kind of laughs at it. Doesn't replace it, and I'm kind of like, hey, man, like, you can't do that. This isn't your house. This is my buddy's house. And he said, oh, what are you going to do? And, like, we got up in each other's face, and I pushed him, and he pushed me, and then we kind of went like this for, like, 20 seconds, like, okay. And in my mind, I'm going, okay, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. I got to be ready for this. Never really been in a fight, but I got to be ready because, like, it's about to throw down. And then nothing happened. It was <laughs> like somebody came and broke it up. Hey, 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 hey. And then all of a sudden, we just, just kept dancing, you know? But I wasn't expecting that moment. Like all of a sudden, I was, in a, I was about to be in a fight that I, I wasn't really ready for. But when you think about somebody that's ready to step into a fight, let's talk about boxers. They train for months on end. They're studying their opponents. They're trying to figure out, man, they're, they're doing things to their body that's crazy because they know they're stepping into a fight that they are trying to win. In the midst of them stepping into a fight, Uh, and trying to study their opponents as best they can to give themselves an opportunity for victory, sometimes they're not ready and they get hit in a way they're not expecting and they go down to the mat. And the whole goal of boxing is to what? Get up so you can beat your opponent. And if you remember, this is illegal now in boxing, but back in the day, if you've seen those old movies like Rocky, um, if somebody gets knocked down and they get back up and they kind of make their way to the corner and they sit down, what does the trainer do? He breaks something open and he sticks it in front of the boxer and goes like this. He puts smelling salts in front of their face and it kind of wakes them up to remember where they are to get, kind of get back into the fight. And smelling salts originally were made for people that were fainting in the 13th and 14th centuries, and they would put smelling salts in front of them, and it would cause the oxygen to get back to their brains as their lungs would expand. And for some of us, as we walk this Christian journey, those of us that have surrendered our lives to Jesus... We step into this life and we, are, we have full victory because of the blood of the cross and what Jesus has done for us. But you know, we're still in a fight. The Bible talks about that language all the time, that we need to recognize we're still in a battle. And that's the direct context that Paul is writing Romans chapter 8 in. In chapter 7, uh, if you're familiar, he's giving all this language. He's saying, I'm warring between my flesh, what's my sinful desires inside of me, and, and I'm warring bef- b- with my spirit. To trust the spirit and not trust the flesh. Because when I trust myself, 
it ends badly every time. But when I trust God's spirit, it can actually end well. And it feels like what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7 is he's been hit with a hook and he's down on the mat. His, mat, his, his back is down on the mat and he's feeling pretty deflated. And if you've walked the Christian life and you realize, man, you have sin in your life, you have an enemy, not only the systems of the world, look at what Ephesians, Galatians says, the systems of the world, you have an actual enemy in the Satan, in the devil that doesn't um, throw punches, but throws lies at you to begin to doubt God and his love for you. And then you have your own sinful desires, your flesh. All three of those things are combined in the midst of our fight. And Paul is recognizing this in Romans chapter 7, and he goes straight into Romans chapter 8 with these smelling salts for us to go, don't forget who you are. Don't forget. Like, I know you're frustrated. You feel like you can't beat your sin. Oh, by the way, you can't. But this spirit that lives inside of you, I'm giving you this new power source. You need to know who you are in Jesus so that you can get off the mat. You can remind yourself of what's true of you, and you can get back in the fight. And some of us just need that encouragement. Man, if you've been walking with Jesus and you just, you blow it again for whatever, whatever that means for you, you blow it again and you just go, I, man, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I can't do it anymore. And we need the smelling salts of the scripture and the spirit to go, no, let me remind you what's true of you and let me remind you who lives in you, my spirit, to fight this battle, get off the mat and get back into the fight. This is where we're going to find ourselves as we wrap up Romans chapter 8 this morning, this beautiful crescendo of these verses that we just read together, where uh, what Paul is saying to the church in Rome, what he's saying to us is this idea that if you are in Christ, if you're in Jesus, if you follow him, if you surrender to him, like God has this unstoppable aim, this purpose for your life that sometimes we forget he does. Not only does he have an unstoppable aim, he has an unbelievable affirmation. This affirmation that he's going to give us if we find ourselves in Christ. And then the third thing we're going to see in the text this morning is an unshakable affection. So as we look at the text, this last bit, those are the three things we're going to see. We're going to see an unstoppable aim in the first section, an unbelievable affirmation in the second, and an unshakable affection in the third. Now, let me just say this. These verses uh, are maybe some of the most quoted verses of the Bible in the last hundred years. We'll talk about why that's the case, but this is massively dense. Like, we could spend eight weeks just covering these these verses alone. And so um, there's going to be parts, I, I really want to focus it in this context of, of Paul encouraging us to continue to fight with our sin. And so some of you are going to go, man, you didn't talk about that as much as I wanted you to. But, well, because one, we have 30 minutes. And then the other two is like going like, what is Paul really trying to do here in the text? Okay. So just forewarning for that, because uh, man, there's a lot, a lot here, and we only have so much time to cover everything. So let's look at that first section, uh, verses 28 through 30, this unstoppable aim that is, uh, Paul is reminding to believers to continue to stay engaged in the fight. Uh, verse 28 says this, and we'll just kind of stop uh, verse by verse and kind of walk it through together. Uh, it says, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, those who are called according to 
his purpose. Let's stop there for a minute. This is one of the verses that gets um, quoted or halfway quoted probably more than any other verse in the Bible, if you're familiar with this verse, right? Um, and usually it gets quoted in the way of, um, uh, in the Christian community at least, this idea that, man, somebody goes through something really hard and we feel uncomfortable as Christians and so we want to fix it, we want to give hope, but we also feel kind of, we don't like feeling like they're feeling bad and so we can kind of jump right away with, well, you know, God works all things for good. Now that's true. It's true. It should give us unbelievable hope. But it's not always kind to say in the moment. So let me just give us warning as we try to be people of love and empathy and care. Um, when you go to somebody that's dealing with some type of loss, some type of grief, be careful not to put this bullet in your gun right away and go, well, you know, God works all things for the good because it invalidates their pain and their grief often. And so, so many times we do this because we want them to believe in truth. Man, you just lost your job. Don't you know that God works all things for good? Like, that's not going to be the first thing I'm going to say, even though it's true. Here's why. It just doesn't give much empathy. It doesn't validate the feelings that are real. And think about Jesus, right? Let's just give one example. There's multiple examples. But think about how Jesus walked the earth in perfect righteousness with his Father, with the Spirit, as he uh, embodied love to other humans. Um, he comes on this scene where there's, there's tragedy. One of his best friends has died, and he shows up on the scene, and the sister Mary is weeping. She's weeping. She's totally disoriented. And she says, Jesus, if you were here, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. I can't believe you didn't come. He would have been here. And what does Jesus do? Well, Mary, you know, all things. I'm going to work all things for good. Don't you believe that truth? It's not what Jesus does in the moment. Even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus, even though he's, he knows the end of the story, what does he do with Mary? He weeps with her. He enters into her pain. He cries with her. Right? So, so I just want us to be aware in the midst of the assurance and this beautiful truth, right? Like this verse, uh, we have to be careful how we use this verse. This isn't some flimsy, trite promise to make your pain go away. And sometimes that's how we use this verse. But this verse does give unbelievable hope doesn't mean you can't use this verse. Just be careful. Be praying in the spirit when you're having those conversations with people that are hurting when to use this verse because this, what this verse does say is that God is in the business of using all things to shape us, to mold us, to correct us for what? His good. Not our good, not our version of good of no pain and unicorns and rainbows all the time. Like, like, like what God would define as good. And he's using all those things at the same time to mold and shape us to his image. That is true if you are a Christian, and that's good news. Even when we don't understand the circumstances he's using. Verse 29, as he continues, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. I think Paul is using this language intentionally as we've been walking through this section. If you've been with us, Paul uses the language of adoption early on in the chapter. He's saying, when you've crossed from death to life, when you've given your life to Jesus, you are now an adopted son, an adopted daughter of the king. 
Just like a, a regular adoption, if you adopt a child, that child is now legally in your family. But what this is saying is not only are you legally in the family of God, but now you start to look like your siblings. You start to take on the traits. And what this is saying is like you start to look and sound and act like Jesus. That's the hope. That's the aim that God has for your life. And the way he does that in, in the beginning of verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That word foreknew, we kind of read that, and, and there's been lots of conversation and debate, lots of ink spilled, uh, specifically on this passage with Calvinism and Arminianism, and does God know, and does he elect, and we believe that he does elect us, and he sees us and opens our eyes to who he is, but in the context of what Paul is saying here, this idea of foreknew is not dealing with knowledge in the, in the sense of how we typically read it, because we could read that and go, well, God knows all things. He sees past, he sees future, which is true. And so because he sees the future, he knows who's gonna choose him and that's who he predestines based on our choice of who's gonna choose him and who's not gonna choose him. But this word uh, and the way the Bible speaks about knowledge is this idea of Adam knew his wife. Doesn't mean Adam knows about her, can describe her. He knows her intimately and relationally. And so this verse could actually read, um, not that God foresaw, which is true, but God foreloved. Like this is an intimate, deep knowledge. God foreloved those people. And because of that forelove, he predestined, he had the horizon, what? Not just for your salvation, but what? To be conformed into the image of his son. That's like, because he loves you, he wants you to be conformed, to be changed, to be fully human. And the way you do that is to be conformed into the image of his son. So he's gonna use things in your life to help make that possible, to conform you to the person of Jesus. Verse 30, as he continues, as he kind of closes this section before he jumps into the end in 31, he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. So there's this aim, there's this purpose that God has for the people that he loves, for the people he calls. And sometimes when we're on our back on the mat, we fail again, we sin again, we feel distant, and we go, I, I, I don't even know if God could use me. And what Paul is trying to say is like, don't you know that God has an unstoppable aim for your life? He has unstoppable purposes for you. You can't see it right now, but it's true that he loves you, that he's predestined you, he's called you, he's justified you, but what Christ does on the cross, and then he has glorified you. Now, this is interesting that Paul uses the past tense, right? Isn't this fascinating? Like, he doesn't say, you will be glorified one day, because that's how we talk about it, because it's true. We're still battling with sin. We're not fully right. We're not fully glorified until Jesus comes back again, or until we go to be with him. We're still in this fight, but Paul uses the past tense and says, you are glorified. Most commentators say the reason he uses that past tense is because this aim is so certain that he can talk that way. He's using it in hyperbole to go like, you're already glorified. It's going to happen. It's guaranteed. You just have to keep going. You have to keep going. God is going to ultimately glorify you one day, and it's guaranteed. So we have this unstoppable aim because of who God is. He has a purpose for us, 
He has an aim for our life. We only have an unstoppable aim. We also have an unbelievable affirmation, an unbelievable affirmation. Man, why do you need affirmation in the midst of your life, in the midst of your journey to try and follow Jesus? I know when I need affirmation, maybe, um, maybe I'm questioning and I'm going, man I, man, I don't know if I'm doing this job right. You ever question yourself in your work to go, how? Man, I don't know. I'm glad they don't really know. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm trying, but like, they should fire me. You know, that kind of deal. Like, you're going, ah, I don't know if I'm really doing this right or I messed this up again. Like, and when that happens, if you have a boss that comes alongside and you say, hey, I know you didn't get that one right, that's okay. You're doing great. You're doing unbelievable. Let me show the stuff that you have done well. And you start to go, oh, starts to melt the doubts a little bit. Or when um, I start feeling like, man, I just, I just, I'm a terrible husband, man. I just, I just, I'm not loving my wife well. I'm maybe not loving my kids well. And my wife comes alongside me and she's a very affirming person and she affirms what's true. It makes me start to go, oh, okay. Right? Like I'm an Enneagram one. I have a lot of uh, self-critical thoughts. Like I beat myself up a lot. And so when somebody comes alongside me and gives me affirmation for what's going on, it makes me go, okay, okay, maybe I can do this. What Paul is saying is what the Spirit does um, in and through us is he gives us this affirmation. Um, What God is saying is like, you know what? It's not really about you anyway. Let me remind you what's true of what I have done for you. To stay in the fight. Keep fighting. And I love the way that this is framed by uh, actually a pastor in New York named Abraham Cho. He talks about, because Paul uses these five kind of, it seems like rhetorical questions in this section. When he starts asking these questions that we've been reading in our liturgy over and over again um, during our, our time of affirmation. Um, but, but, but this pastor says, it, it feels like what, what Paul is trying to do is really surface our doubts. In the midst of our fight against sin, he's trying to surface these doubts we probably all have, and he's answering it by a question. So that's how I want to um, actually look at it and attack it in these five verses each one. So let's look at verse 31. Again, why do we need this affirmation in the midst of our fight with sin? Verse 31 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The assumption that I think Paul is bringing to the table there is this assumption of um, what if what I'm facing right now is too much? Man, my circumstances, I just feel like I, I just can't do it anymore. The waves have been crashing. That relationship, I just keep messing up. That sin, I just keep failing. I keep messing up. My circumstances are so heavy, so confusing. Man, what am I supposed to do? I, I might as well just give up. And what Paul is saying in this moment is what he's doing. Is he's, he's pulling God back into your line of vision because sometimes we forget <laughs> And we're only looking at our circumstances, and we need to be reminded that God is with us in the midst of our circumstances. And he's saying, man, if God is with you, you can face anything with him. He's not going to leave you. He's with you. In the midst of you going, "Ah, I don't know if I can face this. I don't know. Would you remember that God is with you in the fight? He is not leaving you. He is right next to your side. Verse 32, he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not 
also with him, graciously give us all things. So for the first, uh, verse 31 is talking about, man, I don't know if I could do it anymore. This verse, I feel like, exposes the assumption of like, man, God doesn't want good things for me. Because I've been praying about being married for a long time. Then I'm not married. And it feels like I don't got any prospects. And all these people getting married around me, God must be withholding good things from me. He doesn't want good things from me. He's kind of holding out on certain things from me. Now, it could be marriage. It could be having a baby. It could be this certain job that you're kind of going after, and you feel like you're praying, and it just is not happening in your timing, and you feel like, well, God, God must be holding out on me. And what Paul says is, he's like, man, he didn't spare his own son. The most precious thing he could give you he gave you. He's not holding out on you. You start to question your intention, God's intentions, like, man, maybe, maybe he's not good, maybe I'm not good, and you're, you're just forgetting, like, God has timing on purpose. He has what you need right now. Keep trusting him. Maybe this thing you're after is an idol in your life, and he's not going to give you your idols because he knows they will fail you. Would you trust his intentions? He is good. He's giving you the most precious gift you could ever want, you could ever need, and that's his son. He'll give you what you need. You know, my two-year-old niece, man, she, she would eat candy all day, all day. And so she could be confused when she wants candy, and I actually, as a good uncle, go like, actually, we're not going to have any more candy. That's not good for you. And some of us need to be reminded in the midst of our battles, in the midst of our spiritual journey, that God is going to give us what we need. He's a good father. He's a good father. Verse 33 who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Let's read 34 as well. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I think these two kind of go together, the assumptions that if verse 31 is talking about the assumption of going like, I don't, I, I'm overwhelmed with my circumstances. Verse 32 is talking about, is, is God really for me? Is he going to give me good things? I think verse 33 and 34 are talking about our guilt and our shame. Because sometimes in the Christian life, man, we get knocked down. Because we don't trust the spirit, we trust ourselves, and the enemy is way more powerful and crafty than us, and we get hit to the ground, and we start to go like, oh, man, I'm, I'm just no good. I can't do it, right? You, you start to have this unhealthy guilt. Now, th there's healthy guilt. There, there's what the spirit calls conviction and guilt to go like, no, 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 don't do this. This is actually a better way to live. And so the Spirit comes and convicts us and, and gives us a new path to live a different life and to turn from our ways of sin. But then there's also unhealthy guilt that goes like, oh, I'm just, you're just beating yourself up all the time. And you're just kind of, you're operating in this idea of kind of karma with God. Like, well, God just can't love me because I just, I'm just terrible. Or your shame on top of that, which is what really verse 34 kind of leans toward, is like, not only did I do wrong, but I am wrong. Like I'm just broken beyond repair. And if you are in Christ, what is true is what he says in verse 33 and 34. Who brings any charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our failures, we talked about the Spirit last week interceding for us, stepping in, intervening for our behalf as we pray, and we don't know what we're going to pray. The Spirit steps in and gives groans that are deep, too deep for words. He intercedes, He steps in, and this verse says that Christ steps in in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our mistakes, in the midst of our failures. Christ steps in and says, no, my blood has covered that. It's covered it. That's really hard for us to understand because we heap this guilt and this shame. I messed up again. I should know better. Like God's grace has got to run out. Like we think God's grace kind of runs out on us. Like, man, I blew it again. I messed up again. And like God's not going to accept me again. That's not what this verse is saying. Paul is saying, remember the smelling salts. Remember what's true of you in Christ. Your guilt is taken away. Your unhealthy guilt. Your shame is taken away. It's covered by what Jesus has done on the cross. And then verse 35, this last part of this affirmation that we need to hear often when we feel like we're struggling in the Christian life. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The assumption here is that, man, God's just left me. Like he's abandoned me. Like, I mean, I know he forgives me for my my sin, and I know I need him for salvation, but man, I just can't get it right. And God's just fed up, and he's tired of my sin, and it's like, I've given you enough chances, man. Like, I'm done with you. And he's abandoned you. And what this text says, if we believe the truth of the Bible, which we believe the truth of the Bible at this church, is that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Maybe you feel separated, as the the church fathers and mothers would write about the dark night of the soul. You feel distant from God. You feel like he's removed himself from you, and he has the power and ability to do that. But what this text says is that if you're in Jesus, he hasn't separated himself from you. He hasn't left you. He's with you. He's with you. Keep going. Keep trusting Keep believing, keep relying. Because you're not saved on your own effort. That's the problem with these texts. We read these things and we go like, yeah, but like we, we, we count on God for our salvation because we know we can't do anything to get back to, to God. It has to be through the blood of Jesus on the cross. We understand that part. But after that, we go, well, it's on us. Like we got to pull up our bootstraps. We got to do all the right things. And if we don't do all the right things, then oh, God is just up there just going, Oh, not again. That's not what this text says. It's not what the verses say. It's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, no, do you understand how much of a purpose I have for your life? Do you understand how much affirmation is true of you if you're in Jesus, that nothing can separate you from my love? Nothing. Tim Keller, who went to be with the Lord last week, says it this way. He says, if you were a hundred times worse than you are, your sins would be no match for his mercy. You think about that, man. Like, we we beat ourselves up pretty badly because of our sin and our mistakes and what we do. And, like, multiply that by a hundred. God still has enough mercy for you. He still has enough grace for you. He still has enough love for you. He has an unstoppable aim. He has an unbelievable affirmation to be reminded, stay in the fight. 
stay in the fight. And in this last section, he has an unshakable affection for his people. Verse 36 says this, and it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I love this. Paul, again, isn't saying in Romans 8, 28, there's no harm, there's no bad, everything will be amazing. He's like, no, you're in a battle. You're going to get killed every single day. This enemy, you can't fight against this enemy. Sometimes we think, oh, well, we know what to do. We've got the, like in our own efforts, if you try to go up against the enemy, if you try to go up against your flesh, if you try to go up against the systems of the world, you will lose Every single time, you will lose. And he's saying, man, don't you know you're in a battle? If you didn't realize you're in a fight, man, you're going to be getting sideswiped all the time, and you're going to be confused. He's saying, we are like sheep being led to the slaughter all the time, but what is the hope that we have, this unshakable affection, verse 37, responding to 31, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or sword. And he says in verse 37, no. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying, man, nothing can separate you. Right, again, he starts on the heels of, of, of chapter seven where he's going, who's gonna save me, man? I keep messing up, I keep failing because when I trust in my flesh, my own efforts, I fail and I fail and I fail. But he starts verse one of chapter eight, what? There's no condemnation for those in Christ. He starts it with no condemnation. How does he finish it in chapter eight, the end of chapter eight? There's no separation. There's no condemnation, there's no separation if you are in Christ. Amen. Some of us feel like, we feel like throwing in the towel because I haven't been to church in a long time. I haven't prayed. I, I remember my dad has a crazy story. Some of you guys know it. He was an associate pastor at one point. Now he claims to be an atheist. I don't really think he's an atheist. He says that we're having lots of conversations in the midst of his life, at the end of his life. And I remember sitting at a table and he had gone through some crazy stuff in his journey, his spiritual journey. We're sitting at the dining room table. My brother is a year and a half older than me. My mom, my dad, we're sitting there. My dad is pretty distant from the Lord at this point, uh, questioning if he believes. He's, he's been massively hurt by the church. And, uh, and my mom is still trying to kind of like hold us all together spiritually as a family. We're sitting at the dining room table. And she just leans over and she goes, well, should we pray? And my dad just goes, my prayers aren't going to go past the ceiling. And then we all just sat there awkwardly. And then my mom prayed for us. And some of us feel that way. We feel like what my dad was doing in that moment is he was basing his relationship with Christ on his behavior. I haven't been to church in a while. I don't really know if I, I, I don't, I don't know, man. I'm not sure. I haven't been doing all the right things and I haven't been saying all the right things. I don't know if God's going to hear me. And what the Bible is saying, what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying through him is he's going, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Do I believe that God still has something for my dad? I believe that. 
I believe it in my heart. I'm seeing him turn his heart, change his heart in what's going on in his life right now that God is not done with my dad. I believe that to be true. And some of us feel like, ah, we should throw in the towel. We're basing our relationship with Christ on our behavior rather than what's true of us in Jesus. There's nothing that can separate you. Nothing. I haven't been to church in a while. There's nothing that can separate you. I haven't prayed in a long time. There's nothing that can separate you. I'm struggling with my belief. There's nothing that can separate you. I looked at porn again. There's nothing that can separate you. I did these terrible. There's nothing that can separate you if you're in Christ. Can we listen to that? Could we hear that? Could we even get a fraction of the love that God has for us? If we understood it just, just 1%, if we understood God's love for us, we would look totally different. We would live totally different. But the enemy is crafty, and he wants us to believe, no. God doesn't, I don't, uh, you know better. He's getting us to question and doubt God's love for us. And Paul comes in hard with the smelling salts and says, don't you believe that? That's a lie. God loves you more than you could ever imagine. He loves my dad more than he could ever imagine. We need to rest in that love. Once we rest in that love, once we start to believe it, even a fracture, what will happen to us is what he says in verse 37. You will be more than a conqueror. You won't walk around beat up anymore. You will walk around in the freedom of who you are in Christ. And some of us are in Christ, but we've got this shame. We've got this hidden sin that we don't want to bring into the light because we go, if we bring it into the light, then like God's not going to love me anymore or people aren't going to love me anymore. And God goes, no, bring it into the light. There's nothing that can separate you from my love. And some of us that are hiding the secret sin, like we don't want to tell people because of the ramifications. Are there going to be ramifications of your sin horizontally? Absolutely. But that's the best place to bring it into the light. And we're going to see as we jump into 1 John that John is continually going, bring it into the light. Bring it into the light. It hurts, but it's actually the best place to get healing. And if we understand how much God loves us, then we can actually bring that sin that we've been hiding into the light and we can be healed. Now, as we close, the last thing I want to do this morning, and we've talked about it throughout this series. I think Paul does a good job of, of kind of going like, but if you're in Christ, if you're in Jesus, he's not assuming that all of his readers in the church understand this relationship with Christ. And the last thing I would want to do that we would want to do is to give you a false assurance that all this stuff is true of you. Because if you haven't made that decision to surrender your life to Christ, if you haven't given your life to him, if you haven't recognized that you're separated from God because of your sin, because this says what can separate you, sin has separated you from Christ. But if you've made that decision to give your life to Jesus, his blood covers your sin, and now you cannot be separated from him. But some of you in the room maybe grew up in church and really have never made this decision for Jesus, right? And you're the only one from your own heart self-assessment know if you've trusted the Lord with your life. And so I just want to make sure I'm clear on that, that this promise, these promises, these affirmations are for people that have given their life to Christ. And if you haven't done that, if you would say, no, I'm not a Christian, I don't follow Jesus, then these promises aren't true for you, but they can be. 
right? You can enter into a relationship with Christ, giving him your life, asking for forgiveness of your sins, and you can be totally new again. And these promises can be made true of you in the midst of our fight. Some of you need to make that decision because you haven't made it. And the rest of us that have made that decision need to start believing what's true of us. So I was asking my wife yesterday, I said, hey, how do you, sometimes I'll do this randomly when we talk about, like, I'm just trying to get a sounding board for what I'm going to say on Sunday, and I go like, how do you fight your sin? What's that look like for you? And she goes, I just hide behind Jesus, which sounds like a really wise answer, <laughs> right? Because it's not about like these smelling salts, and then you get back into the ring, and okay, I'm going to do it on my own effort. If you do that, you're going to get knocked down again. It's getting up. It's getting back into the ring, and it's going, okay, I'm going to hide behind you. Like, I'm going to trust that the Spirit lives in me, lives through me, and that I hide behind the blood of Christ, that he intercedes for me on behalf, and the Spirit intercedes as I pray, and I'm going to trust him. And when you do that, you start to live victoriously. If you don't do that, and you're just trusting in yourself, you're going to get knocked down, knocked down, knocked down, knocked down, and then you're going to feel pretty discouraged. What Paul is trying to say is don't trust in yourself. Trust in the Spirit that lives in you, and trust in who I say you are. Let's be those types of people as we continue to walk out what it means to live in the Spirit moment by moment. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that, Jesus, you give us our assurance this morning. If we find ourselves in you, if we've given our lives to you, your blood covers our sin. Would you help us as we deal with our doubts of shame, of your intentions, of our guilt, of whether you have left us to believe the truth. God, would you help us, um, by the power of your spirit, bring out the, the sin that is in dark corners of our hearts and our lives, to expose it, to bring it out, and by your spirit, put it to death, as Paul says earlier in the chapter. And as we make our way down to the elements, to the bread and the cup, may they be smelling salts for us to wake us up and remind us who we are in you and how we cannot do it on our own. Help us rely more on your spirit and less on our abilities. And in doing so, would you give us victory to fight the good fight? We ask it in your name. Amen. We're going to take some time to respond this morning as we do. If you're new with us every week, <clears throat> we respond by singing. Uh, we respond by praying. And so there's a, there's a prayer space off to my right, your left. We'd invite you into that space. If there's stuff you're wrestling with, maybe you're just doubting that God is good and wants to give you good things. Maybe you're doubting whether he's still with you. Maybe you've got secret sin that you need to bring into the light. We want to encourage you to write something down, put it up on the wall just between you and the Lord in an effort to pray. That's what unlocks the spirit in us is through prayer, through communing and talking with him and asking for help. So we're going to sing, we're going to pray, and then we're going to make our way down to the table. Um, this is Christ's body given for us at the cross, which gives us access back to the Father. His blood representing here through this juice that is shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're a follower of Jesus, we would invite you to make your way to these elements to act as smelling salts to remind you who you are and how to continue to stay in the battle, not to rely on yourself, but to rely on the spirit that lives within you. Be encouraged, Christian. Your value is more than you could ever imagine. So we want to invite you to do that. If you're not a believer, we would say don't take the elements. 
Have a conversation with somebody that brought you. Have a conversation about what it means to be in Christ, to surrender your life to him. It's the best decision you'll ever make. So as you're going to make your way down, in a minute we're going to stand. You'll make your way down kind of row by row if you're a follower of Christ. We would invite you to do that. And just hold your hands open as a posture of receiving. That's intentional. Your brother or sister will uh, put a piece of bread in your hands, which represents Christ's body. You can dip it in the juice. You can take it here in the prayer space, back at your seat, wherever you feel comfortable. There's also a gluten-free option here in the middle if you have a need for that. So let me pray one last time. And then Stephen will read an invitation to move to the elements. As you've heard this invitation, some of you many times, if this is the first time you're hearing it, I would invite you to listen well this morning. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the goodness and the truth of your unstoppable aim in our life, your unbelievable affirmation, and your unshakable affection. Would we believe it this morning in our response to you? We ask it in your name. Amen.